Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. Just when you got to where your Bible was falling open to Matthew, we are going to switch it up. So we are in Ezekiel 37 this morning. We'll be looking at the first 14 verses. The passage that Lib read a little bit ago flows into this section of Scripture and really helps us see how God gives life to his people. And so we're looking at this idea today, new vision for a new day, or what is a vision for new life? And as we do this, we'll see this central idea that the vision and power for new life come from God and his word alone. So if you begin reading with me, Ezekiel 37, verse 1. Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. Then I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The vision and power for new life come from God and his word alone. I want to kind of give you an idea to orient you a little bit to where we're headed in the uh, coming weeks, just to give you an idea of what the next uh, seven to eight weeks will look like. So today we're really talking about our vision for change. Where does that come from? Uh, Next week, we'll be looking together at our identity and our mission. In other words, who are we and what has God called us to do and who has God called us to be? And then the next six weeks after that, we're going to look together at really what informs or frames how we do that together. In other words, what are our core values or what are our core commitments as we pursue this path together? And as we do this, we're going to be considering, and it's going to be springing from this main idea that God's word and God are really the ones who give us our marching orders. Or you might say it this way, that God gives new life to the church of God by the power of the spirit of God through the faithful preaching of the word of God. Now, I'm not much of a uh, pop culture aficionado, and I'm really not into 
horror, but I couldn't help think this week of the, the TV show The Walking Dead. Now, some of y'all may be really into this. That ain't, that ain't my jam. I don't, I don't really do, you know, kind of, it's, you know, this, for those of you who don't know, it's kind of a post-apocalyptic horror show where you're trying to avoid and survive in the midst of walking zombies. Not my idea of a good time or a good way to spend a nice, quiet evening. But for some of you, that may be, it may just get you going and may help you chill out. For me, I'd have a hard time sleeping that night. That ain't for me. But I could not help but think of that show as I read this passage this week, as Ezekiel sort of in real life, in real time, encounters the walking dead, and God puts him there. In our passage today, we encounter the dead who live. So why in the world would God take something so bizarre and and use it to create such a memorable picture? And what we see here is that God gives Ezekiel a remarkable vision in the first ten verses. He calls his prophet into a wasteland of bones. I can only imagine how eerie this moment is for Ezekiel. The end of chapter 36, which Lib just read for us a few minutes ago, is an amazing vision of how God gives new life to his people. He takes his law, he puts it on their heart, he puts his spirit within them, he takes their hearts of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. Verse 26 of Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And it's this new covenant that is the key to us understanding our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And it's not just here in Ezekiel that God gives this new covenant. He also teaches us this covenant in Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, it says it this way. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. In other words, in the new covenant through Christ, which which we learn about also in Hebrews 8 through 10, God takes his law, his character, what is outside, what is external for generations, and then through his spirit, he takes what is outside and he puts it inside us. He takes his spirit and through the spirit of God, he writes his character on our heart. And so now those who know God by faith in Jesus long to obey and long to reflect this character. And the flow of these covenants is, is, is they, they completely flow the opposite direction. In other words, in the old covenant, Our acceptance with God is by a life of obedience. In other words, as we seek to obey God, God will bless us. But in the new covenant, it flows the opposite direction. Because Jesus has obeyed God, Ephesians 1 tells us, God has given us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places through Jesus Christ. In Christ, he has obeyed, and so we've already received these blessings because of his perfect obedience. It's from this vision of new life, this vision from the power of the Spirit of God that we arrive in a valley of dead bones. This doesn't seem to make any sense to me. If you were giving a vision of new life, of hope, of what this would look like, I think I would head in another direction. I couldn't help but think of the, uh, you know, the kids' movie, the cartoon, that has kind of been resurrected this past year, The Lion King. As Simba tracks into the elephant graveyard, it's an eerie place. If you've been to a graveyard, you know you don't want to be there late at night by yourself. And you certainly don't want to be there if all the bodies are lying on top of the ground. And yet we find Ezekiel here in the middle of a wasteland full of bones. 
In Matthew chapter 4, the Spirit of God leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted. In that day, Jesus was led into the wilderness, and in encountering sin and temptation on that day and every other day, Jesus' victory guarantees his ultimate victory over sin and death. And this picture we have here is a dim echo of Jesus' success in the valley of dry bones. Imagine how ominous this moment is if you're Ezekiel. Imagine that you're Ezekiel and that you're standing there and you realize where you are. The Lord brought me out and set me down in the middle of a valley. Okay. It was full of bones. And behold, they were very dry. Well, how do bones become dry? They get dry where they've been dead a long time. Perhaps you remember the late 80s cult classic, Princess Bride. And if you do, you may remember this character, Miracle Max. Well, in the movie, the hero, Wesley, apparently dies. And they take him to this miracle worker, and he said, Oh, no, your friend here isn't dead. He's mostly dead. And there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. I can't do anything for all dead, but I can work with mostly dead. So, When Ezekiel records for us that these bones are dry, what he's telling us is not only is these aren't just dead bodies. These bodies have been here long enough to where they've decayed and rotted away. They are all dead, dead and dry. And when you're all dead, you're all done. When these bones aren't doing anything. So in verse 3, when the Lord asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? There's an obvious answer. No, they cannot live. Dead bones can't live. That's not possible. But Ezekiel, because he's a prophet of God, knows that God is a powerful God, and he gives kind of a cagey answer, and he says, oh, Lord, well, you know. I don't really know. This feels like a trick question. So in verse 4, God gives a command to Ezekiel. Say to these dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. What can skeletons hear? Nothing. The good news for you and me is they cannot hear anything, no matter what you see on the walking dead. Skeletons hear nothing. People who have wasted away to become a skeleton don't do anything. So not only is this valley full of people who have died, it's full of impossibly dead people. They've been dead a long time. These bones coming to life is impossible. But God is the God of the impossible. Look at verse 5. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God will breathe breath into a skeleton with no lungs, and then those lungs that aren't there will fill with breath, and the skeleton will come alive. And when a miracle like this happens, how do we respond? The end of it says, you shall know that I am the Lord, because only God could do this. You see, the point of all of this is so that people will know that God is God and they will worship him. Well, in verses 7 and 8, Ezekiel obeys. He says, I prophesied as I was commanded. Now, I cannot even imagine how Ezekiel feels with what happens next. I mean, he obeys God and then he hears a, a rattling noise. Look, if you're in the middle of a graveyard, that's not a good sound. The bones start to rattle. And at this point, it's like, I am out of here. Okay, whatever you got for me, I did not sign up for this. The bones begin to shake, rattle, move, and then they start to fill out from the inside out, sinews, flesh, and skin. 
but there's still no life. There was no breath in them. So we moved from a bunch of dead bones lying on the ground to a bunch of dead bodies standing in front of me. This is a fearsome sight. We've got bodies with the structure of human bodies, but they're not actually living, breathing human beings. It's not until verses 9 and 10 that breath actually enters the dead bodies. The Lord tells Ezekiel, prophesy one more time. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Now there's a word that appears over and over and over again in this passage. Sometimes it's clear and sometimes it's not clear. It's in verse 1 where we see the Spirit of the Lord. Verse 5, I will cause breath to enter you. Verse 9, come from the four winds, O breath. The same Hebrew word, ruach, is the same word in each time. It can be translated spirit, wind, or breath. And so 10 times in 14 verses, we have the Spirit of God hovering over this entire passage, blowing from four winds, literally breathing the breath of life into dead bones. So the bones then come to life in verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Ezekiel has got to be freaking out at this point. There's a giant, dead, but living army standing in front of him. Moments before, this living, breathing, moving army was lying, a bunch of bones on the valley floor, and now it stands alive. But what brought this about? What brought life from death? The power of the Spirit of God through the Word of God. Hear the Word of the Lord. I mean, Ezekiel could have taken the best strategies, the best surgeons from the best hospitals, and they could have sutured these bones together, but they couldn't make them live. Dead bodies need a God of the impossible to do impossible things. The work we need God to do is impossible, apart from a work of the Spirit of God. Like Ezekiel, we can take the best programs, the best music, the best strategies, but apart from God's Spirit, breathing life into a church, breathing life into a people, it's like a bunch of doctors suturing bones together. You can tie them together, but you cannot give them life. And how is it that the Spirit of God works? Verse 4, say to these dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. You see, God gives new life to the church of God by the power of the Spirit of God through the faithful preaching of the Word of God. God's Word is a living, breathing, active Word. Hebrews 4 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. God's Word lives and cuts because God gives it life. The conversion of sinners and the faith of our children depends not so much on our strategy and programs, but upon the power of the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. It's possible, and people do it all the time, to grow a church in numbers through good music and good programs. But it's impossible to grow a living, breathing church that worships a living, breathing God apart from the power of the Word of God, pouring from the shepherds of the flock of God, empowered by God's Spirit. So we pray for God to work among us. We pray that God will speak through His Word. I mean, when it comes to leading our church, we have plans and we have prayers. There's no doubt about that. Building relationships, creating a plan, a path for the future. 
But when it comes to our basic underlying hope, it's real simple. God's got to do it. I love the way the, that, that Charles Spurgeon put it. A few different times in his ministry, he was, he was talking to people about the power of the Word of God, about the power of the gospel. He said, imagine that, uh, that on, on the stage, you have a cage, and in this cage is a lion. And you got people coming up and like throwing little things at the lion or poking through the cage of the lion, and there are a bunch of people who feel sorry for the lion. And they stand there and they try to protect the lion. You don't need to protect that lion. All you got to do is let it out of the cage. He says, well, I would suggest to them and feel that it was humbling to them, they should kindly stand back, open the door, and let the lion out. We live with the word at the center of our life, at the center of our worship, because the word of God is like that lion. Unleash it and let it out. Just uncage the word and let it do its work. And now we get some insight into why God has Ezekiel go through this entire process. If you follow the history of Israel, they are in a hopeless time. You have Saul, David, and Solomon, and they rule over God's united kingdom as God intended with 12 tribes. But after Solomon, the king, kingdom has fallen, is divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And in 722 BC, the, the northern kingdom falls to Syria. Well, not too many years later, Ezekiel finds himself exiled in Babylon in 597 BC, and he's there, but there's still this remnant, the southern kingdom. But while he's there, he himself sees the other kingdom fall. And so by 600 years before Christ, it appears that the promise of God has failed, the people of God have failed, and God's people have fallen. But though God's people have failed, his promises have not. And Ezekiel 37 is a reminder of that. There's this remarkable moment in verse 11. Ezekiel has seen all this, and no doubt he remembers it as you would if you were there. And in verse 11, God tells him, these bones are the whole house of Israel. By this time, they've lost hope. They are in exile, held captive by a much more powerful nation. Verse 11, they're saying, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. So what does God do? Verse 12, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Even when God's people die, There is still hope for the God of the impossible. Only God can take dead people and give them life, and only God can take spiritually dead people and give them life. And so we pray that God takes his spirit and breathes life into dead bodies. That's what he does every time someone comes to faith in Christ. Ephesians 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead, made us alive by grace in Christ. What are the dead bones in this valley doing when Ezekiel shows up? lying there. (laughs) They're sitting there on the valley floor. Yet these same bones that one moment were lying dry, dead on the valley floor, now stand before him, living, breathing, moving, walking. What changes? God's spirit moves. God breathes life into dead bones. And the fact is that it's not just those bones. There are spiritually dead people in every generation of the world who need God to breathe life into their dead bones. Perhaps you've attended church your entire life. You do the right things. You show up in the right places at the right times. But apart from life with God, you're like those bodies standing there with no breath in them. You're not a living, breathing, empowered child of God. Maybe you've experienced a form of godliness, but you don't know the power of the Spirit of God. 
You have the appearance of a real body, but no life in you. A form of Christianity, but not the living, vital relationship with God through faith in Christ. Well, John chapter 3, Jesus is meeting with a very bright man. His name is Nicodemus. And he has another conversation about this with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus asks him, he says, how can someone be born again? How, can, how could someone who's already been born actually rebirth? And Jesus describes what this work of the Spirit is like. It's why we have a hard time explaining. It's why we argue how it works. He says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wants, and you hear it sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And then what words did Jesus speak to breathe the life of the Spirit of God into Nicodemus' life? Then he spoke these words, these words you do know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That message is the life-giving message of the Spirit of God. That is the message that takes dead people and brings them to life. That takes people who are outside God's kingdom and brings them into God's kingdom. So if you have not embraced this living, breathing, eternal power of the Spirit of God through the love of Jesus, would you turn from your sin and trust him? Jesus goes on to say, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And this life can be yours. Our hope is in the power of the gospel through the Spirit of God. So how do we know when God has done his work? How do we know when we've been successful? Well, if you track through Ezekiel 36 and 37, you find this phrase, I am the Lord, nine times. And it typically works like this. You see God's work, then you recognize who God is. You see the character of God, the activity of God, the work of God, and then we see the, the, the identity of God. Verse 14, I will put my spirit within you. You shall live. I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is God's work. And when we see God do this kind of work, we see who God is and we glorify God for what he has done. Now imagine for a minute that we could do this. Imagine that by suturing bones together, you could give someone life. Imagine that by working really hard, by strategically, smartly doing things right, you could do this. What happens at the end? Fist bump. We're awesome. But imagine that, that, that this is something that God does. What happens when something impossible happens? When God says, tell these dead people to listen, and they listen. When God says, tell these dead people to walk, and they walk, then we know, he says, that God is the Lord. Then we know that God is at work because something impossible has just happened, and only a God who is supernatural, above nature, a God of the impossible, could make this happen. And that leads us to worship. That's what we sing of amazing grace, because it's mind-blowing grace to praise God's amazing name. When we get less concerned about whether we are getting every specific thing that we want out of a church, and we get amazed by what God is doing. We get our eyes off of ourselves. You know, spiritually dead people can go to church for what they want. When we see and we worship and we get excited about the work that God is doing, that's something that only God does. So where then does our hope for change come from? 
brothers and sisters, God raises the dead, even dead churches. Now look, I am not saying that Ashley River Baptist Church is dead or has ever been dead. It was living for 76 years before I ever got here, and God willing, it'll be living long after, long after I'm, I'm dead and buried. But for the year that I've been here, we've averaged two funerals a month for the last year. It doesn't take long to see where that trend goes, apart from a life-giving work of the Spirit of God. But my greater concern more than that is that our church would be like those dead bodies, standing there looking like bodies but having no life, no breath in them. Activities, programs, human bodies aren't necessarily representative indicators of true life. Only God does that through the conversion of sinners and the spiritual growth of his people. So we commit ourselves to this, this, that God breathes life into the church through his word, by the power of his spirit. Our hope isn't in any person, any method, any program other than Jesus Christ, the living word of God. Jesus is at the center of all we do, so we must pray. If this is something that God must do, we pray. We pray for God to show up. We pray for God to work by his spirit. We pray that God will change us, me, from the inside out. This is a work that only God can do. Yet in all of this, reigning over all of this, remember that God is the God of the impossible. God works through ordinary means. In other words, God works through his word, through the prayers of his people, and through the fellowship of his people. And, and most of the time, that work is incremental, stage by stage, baby steps, one step after another. But there are times. There are times when God breathes out his Holy Spirit like fire. And it consumes us. The living, breathing word of God consumes our desire for sin. Gives us new desires for God and drawing people into the kingdom of God. Revival is the most exciting work imaginable. Yet the scary thing about it is that it can also be incredibly painful. I can't remember a time in my life when I've experienced a remarkable holistic change by the power of the Spirit of God that wasn't also remarkably painful. Because when God breathes life into his people, he exposes our old ways of life. He exposes our sinful patterns of thinking. He exposes our love for self. He exposes our mindset that, 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 that's, that's proud and self-seeking in these deep ingra- deeply ingrained paths in our lives, grooves in our minds and hearts that say we want life the way we want it. And when the Spirit breathes, He comes and He exposes us by the, by the, by the power of His Word. In those moments, we know that God is at work because God's people are more humble. God's people are more broken. God's people are more open, more loving, more gracious. So we pray for God to work, for him to do impossible things, and we anticipate his work. But don't be surprised if that work isn't just what you expected. God works, but then he works and he surprises us. by just kind of way of personal reflection, recently God has been at work in my life in a remarkable way. But it's not a 
triumphant, triumphalistic kind of a way. It's a way where God kind of exposes new levels of myself. And those aren't things that are pretty to see. They're ways that God exposes how much I need his grace, how much I need his spirit, how much, even though I've grown all these years, how much I'm the same person I was when I was a kid. And how selfishness, it comes out in different and more sophisticated, more clever ways, but it's just the same old selfishness. And when God exposes this, it's a painful exposure. I believe God has amazing days ahead for our church. But some days it may feel less like a victory parade and more like the pain of God purging and shaping us. He gives us images in his word like burning dross off of gold. God is changing and growing our church, but he's also pressing in and revealing areas in our lives and in our relationships that must change for us to be obedient to his word. When we exist as king of our lives, when we exist as director of the church, when we exist under our own authority, we're free to do what we want to do, but when we submit to God's spirit, God has the right to direct God has the power to act, but sometimes that means I have to give up control of my life and submit to the Spirit of God in my life. And that can be a painful process. But it's worth it when we see God at work. God is giving new life to our church by the power of His Spirit through His Word. Brothers and sisters, let's join Him in that work. The vision and the power for change come from God and his word alone. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word. In repentance and faith, I'll give you a few moments to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer.